Hey y'all, welcome back to the Confessions of a Crappy Christian Podcast, a place where you and all of your crap are not just welcome, you're wanted. I'm your host, Blake Gishay, and every week I'm showing up with a new friend to talk about the things we're really great at, the ways Christ fills in the gaps on the things that we're not, and how He has been faithful to make His power perfect in our weaknesses. My hope is that you walk away feeling empowered and not alone in your struggles, and that people sharing their stories pushes you to share yours. All right, let's do this. All right, y'all, this week's episode is with Stephanie Tate. Stephanie is an author, speaker, disability advocate, and trauma survivor who is aiming to do what she believes is sorely lacking in our conversations in the church, which is partnering sound theology with the unashamed acceptance of struggle in the present tense. Her story and her insight and her wisdom about being in struggle and being in pain and experiencing trauma is so incredible and convicting and full of so much tangible wisdom that you'll be able to walk forward to better experience pain and experience it with people that you love. Hey, Stephanie, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. Okay, so to get us started, the kind of the way we start every week is I want the people to know who's talking to them. So tell us about yourself. Tell us about your book you have coming out and just kind of what you're about. Okay. So I'm Stephanie. I live in Salem, Oregon. I actually grew up in California. We only moved here about five years ago or so. I live here with my husband and two kids. They are just about 10 and 6. They're kind of my world. Mm. And I do have a book coming out in about a week. It's my very first book. It's called The View from Rock Bottom. So the general idea of the book is I did a lot of work around the theology of suffering and pain and grief and lament, kind of heavy topics. It's not Mm -hmm. exactly a beach read, (laughs) Um, unless you're like me and then have that deep stuff at the side of the pool. But uh, it's a little bit of what my friend calls narrative theology, meaning there's a lot of theology work, but there's also a lot of my personal story kind of Mm -hmm. all throughout. It's a lot Mm -hmm. like pastors typically preach, sort of talk a little bit about something personal and then relate that to the work that we're studying. Mm -hmm. So I talked a lot about um, my history with, I had Lyme disease for 15 years before they got it diagnosed correctly. Wow. This really hard to be sick for that long, especially when you're getting sicker and sicker and you have no idea why. Mm -hmm. Uh, And in my case, because it was so hard to diagnose and because I'm female, which is a different conversation for another day, uh, (laughs) my doctors weren't entirely supportive in the time that they didn't know what was wrong with me. There was a Mm -hmm. lot of insinuation that it was all in my head, Mm -hmm. that it was just depression. So it was just sort of a lonely 15 years too. Um, so I don't know, it had a really big impact on my faith to walk through that. And I didn't see, I didn't see a lot of other books at the time that met me where I was. Mm-hmm. Like there weren't books that I would have wanted to read in that struggle. So I wrote it. I wrote yeah. something different. Like what I didn't want was, oh, I'm going to try not to be rude, but I didn't want another book that was like, Susie Blogger tells you every bad thing that has ever happened to her, but she had a really great attitude the whole time because Jesus. So what's your problem? Because your stuff is definitely not as bad as hers. Mm -hmm. So here she is smiling 
and telling you all the reasons for all the bad things. And P.S. It all worked absolutely perfectly for her in the end. So if you believe in Jesus enough, it will for you too. Yep. Like I've read that book a hundred times and I just didn't want another one of those. So I really tried to not be that book. Mm -hmm. This is hopefully not that book. It does not end with everything working out well for me. Uh, I'm still very much sick. I still very much live in pain every day. And I am not going to pretend I have all the answers for that. Mm -hmm. But I at least tried to find a way to have hope and purpose and a life still, even if the healing doesn't come. Yeah, I love that. I love, I have found through doing this show and having conversations with people that the best books have come out of exactly what you're saying, where people experience something, they walk through something, they start searching for resources and for solidarity through reading, and they're, they come out finding this doesn't exist, so I'm going to, I'm going to create it. And, yeah. and often are coming out of really difficult, it's rare that somebody says, I want to write this book because I have the best life and nothing has ever happened to me and I can't find a book like that, right? So it's people coming no. out of suffering and out of pain and out of difficult experiences and turning around and and creating from that. And we talk about suffering a fair amount on the show. Um, we try to really dive in on the things that the church doesn't necessarily always want to touch which is kind of what you're talking about. I, it, yeah. I'm, you know, when you've gone through a season of intense suffering and pain and loneliness, and then you cut, you're in that, and you feel like you can't find resources for it or Christian resources for it that aren't all smiley and everything ended up fine. Well, and uh, I feel like I saw a lot of two extremes. There was mm-hmm. either, there was either sort of the prosperity gospel side, which I spent Mm. a lot of the early work in the book talking about of sort of name it and claim it and believe your way out of this and behave your way out of this even. Mm -hmm. But I don't know, like I see an equal amount of really gross, bad theology on the other side too. I see a lot of, well, God almost does this to you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or I mean, I've seen John Piper straight up say, God does this to you. He will Mm -hmm. send you cancer. He will ordain that somebody is abused or attacked or because it's for his greater purpose that there's there's nothing God doesn't ordain so just trust that this is his plan for you like that's equally problematic Mm -hmm. so I don't know it was just hard to find a lot of people that were doing sort of the messy middle work right it's not either of those things so what is it then Mm -hmm. what does it look like to say that God is in control and not be that gross and he also made cancer happen to you like how do you work out the tension between those two ideas so I tried to do that in this book but I won't pretend that you know it makes total sense to anyone but me but we'll see no but I think that is that's so important because whether you are newly stepping into your faith or you've been a believer your entire life there's a really good chance that you have heard those two polar theological stances on pain and on Mm. suffering either there's you know god is not going to give you more than you you can handle and he's like you said ordained this or you know the other side of it of just like everything is (laughs) in flux and uncontrollable and we're just going to grin and bear our way through it right and 
it really is a messy middle. It's ex- it, that's exactly what it is because I've had this conversation with friends who are actively suffering and I, I personally, I don't have the answers. I don't, I can tell you that I do believe that God is in control, but also tell you that the world, we live in a broken world and that hmm. the fall messed everything up and this, it, mm-hmm. it, this isn't Eden and our our bodies are broken and our relationships are broken and our relationship with the earth is broken and mm. i live in southern louisiana mm. and we have hurricanes yeah. and i've we you know we had this giant flood two two three years ago three years yeah. ago almost where i mean most of my friends lost everything and Ugh. I watched water rise. I mean, we had water at our back door. And and, and that is the most uh, easily grabbed form or experience of suffering that people were, people that I know have been strong in their faith for their whole lives were looking around. They had lost everything. And I could see in their faces, how could God let this happen? Right. And, And... and then that you you can watch them, especially in the the Southern Louisiana Southern Baptist conversation, immediately feel guilty. Oh wait, I, I, I mean, not I don't really I'm not really questioning God. I, I know He's in control. I know that yes. He's working everything together for good. And I, I I I can very vividly remember being like, you don't have to qualify your pain with me, and I don't think you have to qualify your pain or your questions with God either. My dad used to no. always say that God has really big shoulders and that He can. He can shoulder our questions. He can shoulder our, even even our disbelief at times. And so I think it really is a messy middle that I think if you're listening to the show and hoping to come out the other end with us having bullet pointed exactly what this looks like, you're probably going to be disappointed. Um, but I am I, excited I to- I even stuck like an introduction at the beginning of my book that basically said, like, if you're looking for that book, if you're looking for, you know, I- I talked in the book, for example, about I've had seven miscarriages to have my two Mm. kids. Um, Some of it probably explained by the Lyme, but we'll never really know for sure. And I I sort of wrote in the intro, you know, if you're expecting one of those books where I'm going to, you know, turn to some page and say, oh, it was okay because I met seven orphans that were a sibling group in this. Like, this isn't, I'm Mm -hmm. not going to be able to tie everything up in a bow for you. I'm not Mm going to be able to explain. And this is why everything happened the way it happened. And I think that's half the problem. Mm-hmm. I think I talked a little bit in one chapter about this idea of present tense testimonies, that part of what sets us up for that tragedy shock, if you will, of, oh my gosh, uh, how could something so bad happen to such a good person? And this person's, you know, how is this happening to them, God? They're doing everything you want them to do and something horrible has befallen them. Part of the reason we're so set up for that, I think, is because the way we do testimonies, right, in in modern churches, it's very, let me get up and tell you a story about this thing that was bad that was happening in my life. And here's either how the check showed up for exactly Mm. enough to cover the bill, or here's the miracle baby that came after, you know, so many years of trying. And I don't want to discount that those stories are powerful, Mm -hmm. but when week after week, it's this is how we know God's faithful. Mm. Here's an example of how we know God is so good to us. And that's all we hear. Mm -hmm. When we don't get that story, when we don't get the healing or the, you know, the magic check or the miracle baby, 
we're sort of stuck with empty hands going, well, then I need an explanation. How is then God good here? Either either he's not what you said, or maybe I have some secret sin in my life mm -hmm. somewhere. Or like, there's got to be some sort of quantifiable problem, some roadblock that explains why the system isn't working for me. Mm-hmm. And I wish we had more avenues for what I'm trying to do with this book, which is I don't even quantify myself as someone sort of coming out the other side of pain and writing the book. It's very much someone who's very in the midst of it, mm -hmm. who does not know how this story's going to end, who can't say, and so I'm doing so much better now, and that's why I'm telling my story. It is mm. a present tense testimony of yeah. I do not have answers for things like seven dead babies or daily pain or neurological problems or, you know, the arthritis of a 75-year-old in your 30s. But I still have hope and I still have purpose and mm -hmm. I still have joy and I'm still living a right now present tense life. So what does that look like in the face of suffering? Yeah. I love that present tense testimony here today rather than it being kind of almost like a question answer yeah. testimony. And I know that you talk a lot in your book and in your in your platform about creating space for people to experience pain. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a very that's a very multifaceted conversation. Mhm. Mm but I think it's two-parted in that we have to create space for ourselves yes. to experience our own pain. Mm -hmm. And we have to be capable of, ex of of creating space for other people to to experience their pain. And so I kind of want you to speak into those two, like how we create space yeah. for ourselves and how we create space for others. Well, so the first one, right, creating pain or space for our own pain I think a lot of that has to do with, I hate that authenticity is such a buzzword. <laughs> Everything's <laughs> hashtag authentic and no makeup selfie. And that's so not what I'm talking about. Yeah. But there's there's a sort of a different level of authenticity that I think we've lost the art of. Mm. You sort of touched on it earlier with the this sort of belief that we need to gloss over and put on a brave face for the people around us. Otherwise, we almost feel guilty, like we're we're somehow betraying our faith. We've put faith and fear on opposite ends of this spectrum, right? Mm. Like you can't you can't have doubt or fear and still have faith, which is garbage theology, by the way. Right. I, I've just very recently had a conversation with one of my sons because he was so upset at himself for being afraid of something, mm. and um, he is autistic and he's very hyper literal, and so he kept saying. I kept saying, no, you're you're being so brave about this, bud, and I really appreciate that. And he was really mad at me. And I'm not brave because I'm scared. Mm. I'm scared, Mom. So I can't be brave because I'm scared. And I had to, you know, sort of hold him square in the shoulders and look him in the face and say, no, that's how I know that you're brave. Because if you weren't scared, that's not brave. That's just doing everyday life. Right. If you're not scared, there's there's no need for bravery. Bravery can't exist without fear. You have to be afraid to be brave. Yes. And I think we've done that a little bit with faith. Like if, mm. if you can take it for granted, if it comes naturally, is it really faith? Mm. This idea that if you have any fear or doubt and you express those, it's not faith. I just don't see that. I don't yeah. see that scripturally. I don't see that logically. Uh, I talked a lot in one chapter about uh, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
because I connect to that story a lot. And it was, it was sort of a springboard for me in getting out of that funk of feeling like, you know, when I first got sick, I was a teenager and I'd grown up in evangelical culture. And so I sort of felt like I was supposed to be okay with getting sick and okay with losing for what was me a big part of my life, which was dancing. I was mm -hmm. very serious about dancing. That was supposed to be my life. And I couldn't do it anymore. And I had this expectation I put on myself of, okay, I guess I'm supposed to get up there with this brave face and tell everybody that it's okay that God took this away from me. Because I just know that if I handle it with this brave face and positive attitude, he's going to give me something so much better than dance. And that's just going to show everybody how good God is. So that's mm. my job. My job is to walk around every day like the personal embodiment of positive encouragement, Caleb, 24-7. And anything else is just that's not good Christian faith. Mm -hmm. And then you get into this story of Jesus in the garden. <laughs> Yeah. Of of the savior of the world who's perfect. And if we believe he's perfect, there's a lot to wrestle with in that story. Because we're so quick to, man, I've heard that story and Jesus praying in the garden. I've often heard it taught as essentially a scene change. Like the Last Supper is really big and the crucifixion is really big. And there's this little stop in the garden in between. But three out of the four gospels carved out space for it. Right yeah. in the middle of the crucifixion story. So it's got to be important. And I've also heard the story kind of brushed over as his prayer is, oh, not my will, but yours be done. That, that isn't the whole prayer. <laughs> that isn't what he prayed. And if you read the story, he's there for hours. And he repeats the process over and over of praying and praying and praying long enough for the disciples to fall asleep, coming out, begging them to come be with him, doing it again and again. So this isn't a quickie like, just so you know, I'm cool with this, God. Whatever your will is, I'm there. That wasn't what happened. He's begging and pleading and terrified and mm -hmm. asking God, is there any way to not do this? Because I don't really want to have to do this. Mm -hmm. So if there's any other way, can you please show me what it is Yeah. so that I don't have to do this? That's certainly not, you know, positive, encouraging Caleb. That's certainly <laughs> not, you know, I, I, I love sometimes looking at, what the story doesn't say or what the author doesn't say in his letter. Or I love doing that with passages of the Bible. And in this mm -hmm. story, it's really profound to me that he goes out to the disciples to keep trying to bring them into this moment with him. And never once do we have Jesus going out there and saying, Hey guys, buck up, be brave, trust God. He's got this. Just trust me. Okay. I know what's going to happen in three days. It's all going to be good. You just have to trust. Okay. That doesn't happen. Instead, we have Jesus coming out, begging his disciples to be by his side and experience this embodiment of pain, to, to see him begging and pleading with God on the floor, on the ground of this garden in the dirt, and without any of the, but it's all cool, mm -hmm. just bare, unassuming, raw, the whole thing out in front of them. I can't pretend that that doesn't mean something. Right. Especially, like I said, when three out of the four writers make space for it in kind of the most important story in the whole thing, <laughs> right. there's a reason that's in there. Yeah. And yet when it comes to making space for our own pain, I don't see us following Christ's example very often. 
Right. When and it comes to our own pain, we think we're supposed to, yeah, we think we're supposed to like, if I break a sweat or if I show that this is difficult at all, I lose. I'm not, I don't look like Jesus. When if we look at the actual picture that he gave us, the actual experience that he had that, okay, like you said in the beginning, that he is perfect. Right. It's that he, he didn't want to do this. He knew that right. it was going to suck really and bad. And more than that, that he openly expressed that. Right. That there was nothing heretical, mm-hmm. right, about getting in front of God the Father and saying, can we not? Because I really <laughs> don't want to. This is hard. Yeah. I don't like it. And yes, he paired it with the all-important sentiment of, you know, not my will, but yours be done. But it was paired with the acknowledgement of, but I really don't want to do this. Mm-hmm. I don't have to like it. And I don't. And I'm not going to pretend that I like it and put a brave face on it. I'm going to be honest with you and have that intimacy of being able to say, this is how I really feel. And God can handle that. But not just God can handle that because it's Jesus in this story. So it's not just that he can handle it. It's that there's nothing sinful about that conversation. Dang. That's, that's a word right there. I mean, uh, you know, asking that very open-ended question of how do we make space for our own pain? And the answer is basically, I mean, Jesus did it. Yes. (laughs) Like look at the perfect example and do that. When things are hard, when when the the cards that have been dealt are painful and you don't want that to be the hand that was dealt, you get on your knees and you talk to God and you tell him the truth. I think yes. so often we try to dress up even our pain with okay, I don't love this, but I'm gonna put on like I'm gonna put my K love face on and I'm gonna I'm gonna, you know, this is I we it's almost like platitudes we platitude yes. our way through it of Absolutely. i know that you're good i know that you're in control i know that yeah and those things are good that's not a bad thing no. but i think we we do ourselves and our relationship with god a disservice when we don't at least pair those platitudes with i know that you're good but this isn't well and the chapter with the gethsemane stuff the theme of that whole chapter is this idea of a holy intimacy inside of pain. Mm-hmm. That, yes. that there's scripture after scripture that says that when we experience pain and suffering, it literally connects us to Jesus because it connects us to his pain and suffering on the cross. Mm-hmm. And so if we put on the fake brave face all the time, like we're going to talk in a, in a minute about the second half of your question about connecting with other people. And yes, I acknowledge when we put on the brave face, what we normally hear is the negative is, oh, then people won't know you're suffering and you won't connect with other people. It's bigger than that. You miss out on the opportunity to connect and have this intimate relationship that goes deeper with, with Jesus, not just yeah. with the people around you. Because if you can't acknowledge your pain, if you can't sit in it and say, I'm not okay with this right now, and that's okay. I don't have to be okay with this. You don't get to connect with that experience. You don't You don't get to experience that sacred tie between you freaking out right now and Jesus freaking out in the garden and the, the bond that you have in that moment. And mm-hmm. there are very few good things, if you will, Um, that sort of obviously come out of bad situations. I'm not going to do the sort of the fake, oh, this always happens for this reason. Are there good things that come from our suffering? Absolutely, there can be. I fully believe he can redeem even our most painful places for, for kingdom purposes. I do. 
But what I'm not okay with is saying, so that's why all these bad things happen. But one of the good things that can come out of suffering, if we let it, is that deepened intimacy. But it doesn't work if we're not willing to say what's really going on with us. I mean, it's no different than marriage, right? Mm -hmm. I actually used as an example in that chapter that I realized at one point that as we were going through our miscarriages, my husband and I are very different personality types. Mm -hmm. And the ways that we grieved look very different. But I sort of put this fake expectation on myself that it wasn't fair to burden him with me sort of falling apart. Mm -hmm. And I needed to hold it together a certain amount for him so that he didn't have to carry me. Mm. And the more I did that, the more I inadvertently created this artificial barrier between us in, in this most painful experience that should have really bonded us together. Because I wasn't being honest about my pain, I had distanced us instead of pulling us closer. And then what makes it worse is because I'm such a woman about it, I <laughs> resented him for not knowing that I was hiding all of that or for not grieving the way that I was grieving or for not being connected with me in the ways that I needed, even though I was covering all of them up. Mm -hmm. And I think we do that in our relationship with God. I think we set up these artificial barriers where mm. we put on a brave face and we go, I'm good. I'm good. I got this. I got faith, right? Yeah. I totally have faith. I have no doubts. Your will, not mine. I'm good with this. That's cool. I can get cancer. My kid can die. You know, our house can burn down. But Jesus, I'm good because mm -hmm. Jesus, look at me. I'm still at church on Sunday and I might wipe a few tears during that one song, but I'm good. Yeah. And my voice does that thing when anyone comes over. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> mm -hmm. I swear the more like it goes up, the more you know they're not okay, oh, right? I'm, I'm good. I'm good. Mm -hmm. I'm good. Yep. And we do this where we put this artificial barrier between ourselves and God instead of finding that sacred connection moment of, hey, when I have pain, I'm literally bonded even deeper to Christ and his pain on the cross. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that I do want to kind of like as an aside, I think that it is possible to walk through pain and encounter people and be okay. Mm -hmm. I think that, but I, I, and this is almost a speculation. Okay, so people that listen to the show know that uh, four-ish years ago, my oldest almost died. We, mm -hmm. Like, I almost, like, watched her die in front of me. It's the most traumatic thing I've ever been through. It's the most pain, most painful thing I've ever been through. And when I saw people after the fact, she, you know, she lived and she was healthy and she is healthy, people would say, you seem so okay. Hmm. And I think, and again, this is my personal experience and a little bit of speculation, I think that that is because I was being so honest about my pain mm -hmm. with God and mm. with my husband and mm. with my parents that that not trying to put that facade up between me and everybody allowed I it wasn't a facade when I saw people and they were like you seem so okay and you've just been through this really traumatic week I don't think that we need to and again everybody processes differently everyone everyone 
react differently. But you but acknowledged, I, you but know, I was acknowledging the pain. The pain. I yeah. was acknowledging like, acknowledged what the, the hell, wound. God? What was that? Like that was I mean, it's not, ridiculous. It works like physical wounds, right? Like you can't exactly. just cover it up and pretend it's not there and expect exactly. it's going to heal. But you also sometimes don't need to let it be out in the open for everybody. No, nope. you know, and I'm not. I'm just saying that as I long think, as you're processing it somewhere, you're processing right. it. And so I think that sometimes, you know, I've had friends go through really traumatic things, and I see them, and they they seem really okay, and it's because they have people that they're processing it with, and because and they are processing it with God. But then you do have the friends where you come over, and their voice is really high pitched, and they're telling you they're fine, and you're sitting there, you're not fine, you're not okay, and it's because they feel like they need to be okay for everybody. Mm-hmm. And that's Which the problem of- is that we have to drop the expectation that somehow. As Christians, we're just supposed to be okay all the mm-hmm. time. That that Christ is enough for me is supposed to look like, so I'm never angry, because angry is the big no-no one, right? Like, we should never be angry. And, and I'm never afraid, because fear and faith can't have both, so I'm going to pick faith. That these are sort of these false assumptions that we put on ourselves that mm-hmm. make it impossible to acknowledge and process those wounds. And you can't heal if you're not processing the wound. You absolutely cannot. Whether it's with other people, whether it's privately with just, you know, your spouse or your best friend or God, somewhere you do have to acknowledge the things that aren't okay. You have to acknowledge those hurts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think that that kind of perfectly segues us into kind of the second part of the conversation we wanted to have, which is how do we create that space for other people? So you show up to your friend's house who's just been through a really traumatic thing or is in a painful season, and they're they're trying to tell you they're okay. They obviously aren't okay. Like, how do we facilitate that? How do we create that environment for the people we love and point them to an honest conversation with God? And, yeah. and that, that he, you know, outside of basically recounting all of the really incredible truth that we've talked about up until this point that you know that God that Jesus did the same and that that honesty bonds you and and creates a deeper relationship with Christ how do we as Christians who want to step into our friends lives well how do we create that yeah so oh excuse me so the um the seventh chapter of my book is probably one of my favorites in the whole book, and it's called Cover Your Mirrors, and it's named after Jewish practices around death and mourning and sitting mm-hmm. Shiva. So long story short, I found out that I'm Jewish uh, a few years back. I'm adopted. My birth mother's adopted. It's this long, convoluted story. You can read mm-hmm. it in the book, mm-hmm. but I didn't find out until adulthood that that I'm culturally Jewish, and a lot of sort of aha moments happened for me in that because I've been unusually drawn <laughs> to Jewish religious traditions and culture and a variety of things. And one of the things that I had already, before I found out I was Jewish, outlined for this book was that I was oh, going wow. to write this chapter on sitting Shiva. That's so cool. Yeah. So I connected a lot with, and I think part of the reason I connect with a lot of Judaism in general is it's so much more of a practice-based faith than a lot of modern evangelicalism. Mm -hmm. And because we're humans, I really do think we need tangible practices for things. I'm I'm really known right now for saying we need to find some sort of sackcloth and ashes 
practice again because we don't really know how to deal with lament. Like we have communion and that's a great tangible practice that gets us to go through the motions even when we're not feeling it. That mm -hmm. helps us connect those dots and keep showing up and keep getting fed, if you will. We don't have a lot of that for lament. And I like that in the Jewish faith, when it comes to sitting Shiva, there's very clearly outlined practices for what that should look like. Mm -hmm. And so I learned a lot from that. And I tried to apply in the chapter what I think that we can learn from them in a broader general sense, not even just for death alone, but for just anyone who's suffering or in pain. So one of the things I think is really cool is traditionally when someone's sitting Shiva, they don't lock their front door. So people come and go in, in, in the process of them sitting Shiva for this week. Huh. And people come and, and bring them food and take care of them. And so one of the first things that really jumped out at me when I was reading up on this was, so when we have like a memorial for somebody, we generally have some sort of reception or something afterwards. And who normally feeds people then? You know, <laughs> normally it's the bereaved person who's figuring mm -hmm. out the arrangements. So traditionally, though, if you're sitting Shiva, that's not a thing. Like it, the bereaved person is not expected to help take care of your needs, right? Yeah. We're going to recenter here and focus on they're not feeding you. You're feeding them because they're the bereaved person. Yeah. But it goes <laughs> so much deeper than that. There's actually an expectation that you show up to their house, but you don't initiate a conversation with the grieving person. Mm. You literally hold space in the most literal sense by being in their space available to them. And if they want to initiate that conversation with you, they will. And you can respond. But if they don't initiate conversation, you need to let them sit in the corner silently or cry or do whatever it is that they need to do, but you need to keep existing in the space available for them. You talk to each other about the person that's lost. You share memories. You you talk about what you're going to miss, but you don't talk to the person who's grieving unless mm. they want to talk to you. Hmm. And I thought, holy cow, Like we don't have anything that looks remotely like that. Because no. what we tend to do when people are in pain is we want to fix it. We want to offer an answer. Well, maybe God did this because blah, blah. No. <laughs> and, or we want to say, it's going to be okay because, or, you know, here's what you need to do. You need to get a shower and you need to take care mm. of yourself. We're so quick to offer solutions when what they really need is for us to literally hold space. Mm-hmm. And we don't have a lot of practices around that anymore. No, it definitely would not come naturally for no. you. I mean, I'm you know kind of like sitting here and trying to listen and learn from you. And your your initial reaction to that is, yeah, I can I can do that. I can I can you know. And then you think about past when you've actually, you know, not just in the sense of a death, but in just general pain and trauma. We want to jump in. <laughs> we want to, you know, and. The, I think that there are really good things about that. We want to feed them. We want to take their kids if they need our, their kids taken and all of those kinds of things. But I think along with that comes, do you need to talk about it? Let's talk about it. How, what What are you believing right now? What's the truth? And Well, and so I talked a lot. Like there's a lot more Shiva traditions laid out in the book. And it's a lot deeper than just those two things. But in general, what I liked most about the practices is 
Someone who's sitting Shiva is very clearly identifiable, like visually, they're dressed a certain way. They're, you're mm-hmm. going to see them, right? So you're not mm-hmm. going to forget about hurting people in your midst. You're not going right. to be able to shove them in the corner and kind of push that down so the visitors don't see, you know, the scary, sad person. They just see us all happy, happy. You're, you can't do that in this tradition. But more than that, there's all these steps that are taken so that that person really belongs to their community and their community really owes a lot to them in terms Mm -hmm. of care. Mm -hmm. And so what's so neat is the whole idea of cover your mirrors, right? Is So they cover the mirrors in their home and they refrain from a lot of what we would consider self-care. Don't put on makeup. Don't spend a lot of time caring for yourself physically or your body. Don't shave. Don't, there's all sorts of rules. And part of that is the idea of making your outward appearance is disheveled as sort of your inward state. But the bigger thing that goes on is you're sort of removed from inward focus and pointed back out to your community. And at face value, that sounds so backwards from Western tradition. Because when someone's going through a loss or a hard time or a painful diagnosis, the first thing we want to point out is Mm self-care. Take care of yourself. And yet the Jewish tradition is saying to do the exact opposite. Basically, yeah. But the reason they can do that It's because they've already laid all that important groundwork of having the community care so wholly and be so responsible for the mourning person that there is no loss of care, right? There's no, well, we're just telling you to deny yourself and turn your focus outward. They can turn their focus outward Mm -hmm. because they're already being so wholly cared for because they belong to each other in death. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In fact, there's a traditional blessing that you say to somebody when you're leaving their home or when you're addressing them in their home when they're sitting Shiva. And essentially, it translates loosely to this idea of may God bless you or may God comfort you. There we go. May God comfort you among all the other mourners in Zion and Jerusalem. And when we first read that as, you know, white Westerners, it almost sounds offensive, right? Like take this person's <laughs> deep personal pain and then just sort of drop it in this communal bucket of, yeah, but think about all those other hurting people. <laughs> it seems so weird. But when yeah. you look at it connected to all the other practices, when you take it as a whole and you realize in death, they've created this amazing system in which we really belong to each other. Mm-hmm. They're held wholly by their community and in doing so, they can be pointed back to that connection. Instead of being isolated and feeling like nobody could ever understand this pain, I'll never be the same, they're reminded that we belong to each other. Yeah. And then they're held in very tangible ways so they can feel that and not forget it. I love that. That is so good. That's so good. I mean, and I think that there's so much to be said for for a willingness to learn from from different belief systems or different cultures. We, we need to learn from them and then develop our own practices. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. I think that there's a lot to be learned from, from a lot of, of from any, anything that's different from us for sure. Yeah. Um, so we're at the end of the interview where we do our rapid fire questions. Okay. Um, what do you, we already talked about what's your Enneagram type? So I'm a seven, if that wasn't super obvious by my, let's just say talkativeness. <laughs> well, I have a seven wing. So I think that that makes for like really good podcasting. 
second question is what is something that can always pull you out of a funk? I don't really have a good answer for this because, I mean, I, so not only do I have the Lyme stuff, but I'm currently in treatment for uh, complex post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm. And so I'm kind of, between my sevenness and that, I'm in a phase where I'm really trying to step back from things that are really just glorified numbing techniques. Mm-hmm. So I've, you know, been good at a good Netflix binge and I have all sorts of comfort eating and there's plenty of things that have helped me quote unquote get out of a funk, but I'm trying to step back and learn that a lot of the times that's just me numbing and not being willing to say, so what am I really feeling and what's going on here? Yeah. If that makes sense, like yeah, that's absolutely. kind of a cop out answer, but yeah. I don't really have yeah. a go to thing anymore. Yeah. I'm trying that's to get fine. better about embodiment and saying, no, let's put pause on the Netflix and say, what am I really feeling right now? What is yeah. my body trying to tell me? Yeah, absolutely. Um, what is the last thing you watched on TV? I just finished up the last season on Netflix of Shit's Creek. <gasps> Thank you, Sarah Bessie. I am now officially obsessed. Wait, did you know that I'm like a huge Shit's I did Creek not know. Fan. I oh literally just finished the last episode that was on Netflix <sighs> earlier today when I was taking a break. So good. What's really funny is my mother. My mother who came up about as conservative Baptist as they come. Mm-hmm. My mother was at my house this summer. She stays with us for most of the summer. because She works at a school. So it's really mm-hmm. useful that she can come stay with us in the summer and hang out and be with my kids. She <laughs> comes in one night and she's like, have you seen this awesome show on Netflix? It's called Shit's Creek. And I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> I keep seeing about this from some of my awesome author friends. But okay, my mom likes this show, so (laughs) I'm going to like temper my expectations, I guess. And then she shows me an episode as an example, and I'm like, who are you and what have you done? How do you, why do you like How are you cooler than me? You're so much cooler than me, and I don't know how to deal with that right now. (laughs) My mom's kind of awesome. Yeah, sounds like it's, oh my gosh, it's my favorite, favorite thing on television. It's hysterical. Um, It's It's hysterical. Well, Stephanie, thank you so much for this incredibly informative and hilarious conversation. Uh, Tell everybody where to find and follow you. So I am on Facebook, but I don't have a page. I just have a personal Facebook right now. We'll see how long that lasts because I'm coming right up to that friend limit. Mm -hmm. But um, you can just search my name, Stephanie. Mm -hmm. Last name is Tate, T-A-I-T. You can Mm -hmm. blame my Canadian husband for whatever that is. (laughs) Uh, I'm on Twitter and I'm a lot feistier on Twitter than I am on Facebook. So if you want like the real like deep cut stuff, go to Twitter. Um, just don't repost any of that where my church friends can see it on Facebook. <laughs> um, I'm also at stephanietatewrites.com and that's sort of the hub to really get info for anywhere else. So it's probably the best place to start. I've got links okay. to my book, I've got links to my social, and I try to keep updated on where I'm going to be speaking and stuff like that. Awesome. Perfect. Thank you so much, Stephanie. Thank you. I'm really excited to have been on the show. A lot of my readers suggested you as just an awesome show to be listening to. So you definitely have a new fan now. Oh, thank you so much. 
you so much for tuning in to another episode of the Confessions of a Crappy Christian podcast. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast and you can find the show notes and more information about the show at confessionsofacrappychristian.com. I'll see y'all next week. For the ones who know that a little late is always too late. And that the clock doesn't stop just because you're missing a part. Granger offers supplies and solutions for every industry. And our KeepStock inventory management solutions help ensure you have the right stuff in the right place at exactly the right time. Visit Granger.com slash KeepStock to learn more. Granger for the ones who get it done. Start a rewarding new career right away. Giant Eagle has immediate openings for supermarket positions, including curbside roles, get-go positions, pharmacy technicians, and warehouse workers. To find your new job and get hired in as little as one day, visit jobs.gianteagle.com.